I have never held a sword before. I've shot 20-gauge shotguns. I've shot rifles. I think probably it's a few times when I've shot handguns. Uh, uh, never twirled a mace before. I've twirled a baseball bat a few times. But I've never held a sword. I, I was thinking at the beginning of the first service, that old Marines commercial, the few, the proud, and you've got that six-foot-four handsome crew-cut man, and he's in dress regalia, and he, he turns and he flashes the sword up. That sharp, glinting, metallic blade is what is pictured as protruding out of the mouth of Jesus Christ in our passage today. And he has some hard words to say to the church at Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore. Or how, how do you say that? Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you and, will, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I, what you're going to find about the church in Pergamum is a dissonance. On one hand, you have a church that is strongly committed to Jesus Christ. Well, we just read there that you, uh, you did not renounce your faith in me. You... You remain true to my name. You even have a martyr in your midst. You've made great sacrifices. On the other hand, you have a church that has capitulated to the society's pressure and views as it relates to human sexuality. They're also participating in these pagan idol feasts and so on and so forth. And you find... This church, and both pictures of them are true. And Jesus Christ says that that is an extremely dangerous place to be, where you are like in selective obedience mode, where, where you're doing some things for me, and then you're, what, partitioning part of your life off over here and, and keeping it for yourself. So, ah, Pergamum is in, in a dangerous spot. Let's look. First of all, at the, 
the interesting parts of this. Verse 13 says that, I know where you live. I know that you live where Satan has his throne. So Pergamum was the capital city of Asia Minor. It was, it, it was cosmopolitan, political, cultural center of power. So that might be the reference here to Satan's throne. More interestingly enough, and I discovered this this week, there is a large series of museums in Berlin and they're located on Museum Island, whatever that's supposed to mean. But there's several of these. One of them houses what's called the Pergamum Altar. And it is a life-size reproduction of the most striking architectural feature in the city of Pergamum in the first century, which was the Altar of Zeus. And, and I think the way that this museum works is they purposely recreate life-size. So it's 115 feet by 110 feet the most grand feature in the city of Pergamum, the altar of Zeus. So as you're walking up into the city, you look and you say, that, that kind of looks like a throne of Satan. It might be what he's referring to here. The other interesting part about Pergamum is that it, it also housed the temple of Asclepius. Or is that how you say it? Asclepius. Uh, when I was parking down in the, at the school this morning, the car right next to me had one of those, I think it's an EMT logo on the back of it. A little cross, and there's the staff, and there's the snake. That's Asclepius, the god of medicine. What I'm told is that if you were sick, you walk into the temple of Asclepius, what they told you to do was they urged you to lie on the ground as snakes crawl over your body, Reminds you of Indiana Jones and the temple of that temple of doing that one scene when he's there's snakes everywhere. Next time you're having an MRI, you should think you've got it pretty good compared to what's what's the point? The point is that this was a place of satanic, demonic, strong pagan presence in the city of Pergamum. Do you ever wonder how Jesus evaluates our cities? I wish sometimes that I could put on these like prophetic spectacles and be able to look at a place or look at a thing and say, well, this is what Jesus says. This, what, what's the throne of Satan in America today? You say, oh, it's Vegas. Well, I mean, what would Jesus say about D.C.? What would Jesus say about Boise? What would Jesus say about Algiers? I was reading a story this week of uh, the story of an Algerian woman who described how difficult it is for women in that country to convert from Islam and and to become a Christian. She said, as soon as you become a Christian, your husband divorces you. As soon as you become a Christian, you're kicked out of the home and you have no source of income. She said the Algerian family code doesn't grant child custody to the spouses of those who confess a religion other than Islam. So you lose your husband, you lose your kids. That's all part of the cost in Satan's throne. The next interesting feature in the second part of verse 13. You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of... Antipas, who was a very famous Christian martyr, 
martyred under the reign of Domitian, who was a famously cruel and sadistic emperor. One of the stories told about Domitian is that he was in a city one day, participating or sitting, watching the gladiatorial games going on in the, in the Colosseum. And it so happened that the gladi- gladiators he was supporting ended up losing. He was not very happy about this. He looks up in the stands and he sees a group of people cheering for the gladiators who won. And so he calls the centurions to himself and he says, you see those people up there? I want you to go and execute them. Uh, for to cheer against the will of the emperor was to cheer against God himself, he said. And if you're a centurion and you're told by the emperor to go kill somebody, what's your response? Your response is, yes, my lord. That four little word, L-O-R-D, my lord, that is the thing that Antipas refused to attribute to Caesar. He refused to attribute to the emperor that which he thought, that title which alone belonged to Jesus Christ. And so what they did is they brought him before a statue of the emperor and and said, you're supposed to confess his lordship. And he says, I won't do it. And they stuck him on a spit and they roasted him to death like a pig. Do you know what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 4? I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and cannot do any more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I'm sure Jesus said it with exactly that inflection. (laughs) Fear him. And that's what this brother in Christ was willing to do. The, the rest of the church in Pergamum, they weren't being martyred. But you have to think that their lives were becoming more and more difficult. Life was just not easy by virtue of the fact that they feared God. And that brings me to the question, what is evidence in your life? Like, How does your life look different by virtue of the fact that you fear God. You fear the one who has the sharp double-edged sword protruding out of his mouth. I tell you, I greatly admire our brothers and sisters in Christ who today are going to refuse to watch the Super Bowl based on their convictions of what the fourth commandment teaches. And we have a, a large number of, okay, maybe not a large number, but but you know, lots of Christians in our tradition believe that the, the fourth commandment you're to rest and worship on the Sabbath day, and this day is, is holy, which means it is set apart from all the other days, and therefore, no, we shouldn't watch gladiatorial combat <laughs> at University of Phoenix Stadium. Uh, I admire those brothers and sisters. I don't agree with them. I'm excited about chips and queso and, and a game later today. But you know what? They do that because they fear Jesus. It does beg the question, like what of the societal pressures are, are, are impinging against us and, and how are we pushing back against those? Why do they think we're strange? Does, does anybody think that you're strange over anything by virtue of your fear of Jesus? No, I, I admire them. 
They won't be one of the hundred million people who watch it on television today. And I think I saw that, like the, the original Super Bowl, the f- tickets cost maybe sixteen dollars, maybe six dollars. I think the tickets were going for eight thousand dollars on StubHub earlier on. You know what the the emperor famously said? I can't remember which one it was, but he famously said he said when the Colosseum's opened, he said you've got to give the people two things: give them bread and give them circuses. And if you do that, everybody's happy. I'm not telling you not to watch the Super Bowl, but... but um. So, you've got a picture of a faithful, trustworthy, strong church. That's verses 12 and 13. And then you get these stern words. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So this is a reference back to the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. The short version of it is that the king of Moab, Balak, fears the great swath of Israelites that have come out of Egypt and are making their way across the desert. He fears that they're going to conquer his kingdom of Moab. So what he does is he hires a prophet, Balaam, to come and look upon the people and to curse the people. Do you remember the story? He takes Balaam up on a a high mountain ridge and he looks down across the valley. He sees all the people of Israel and he's going to curse them. But he says, I can only speak the words that the Lord tells me to speak. And what ends up happening is instead of cursing him four, four times, four different occasions, he blesses them four different occasions. And the king is just pulling his hair out. I did not pay you good money in order to bless these people. When you read the story, it seems like the New Testament is very hard on this prophet. Have you ever noticed that? It seems like, hey, Balaam... He did, it, he did things pretty okay. It's not until you get to chapter 31 where the cat's out of the bag. In chapter 31, what Balaam says is, fine, we can't curse them this way. Well, here's how you can curse them. Send your women, the women of Moab, to go and seduce the married men of Israel, and then they'll follow after false gods, and then... Yahweh will judge them. If you, anybody here, enjoy reading spy novels, you know that, what is that plot right there? That's what they call a honeypot. A honeypot, a honey trap. You seduce the person with someone beautiful in order to, what, extract classified information out of them. What do we have? A few... Was it a couple of years ago we had a red-headed Russian who was getting close to, anybody remember that? Getting close to the cabinet and trying to seduce them and, and trap them and, and get you know, classified information. What, what he says is that you guys, you church, have fallen victim to the culture's view of sex. And that's where he goes on in verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I expected to be able to find more about the Nicolaitans this week. I I didn't. 
All I know is that they were a sex cult that you know, took pagan views of sexuality and, and syncretized them with Christianity. But what Jesus says is that you've made more or less the same mistake that the Israelites made. You've rejected God's word about sexuality from the Torah, and you've adopted the wider culture's view. You say, what's the big deal? Doesn't everybody have the right to be able to do with their own bodies whatever they want to do as long as it's not hurting somebody else? Doesn't everybody have a right to determine what's true for himself or true for herself? I can do whatever I want. It's my body. Who gets to determine what is is sexually right and sexually wrong? It's a very big issue here with the Church of Pergamum. It's a big issue with the next church we'll look at next week. So my plan is to talk uh, talk about that in, in next week's sermon. Again, you have a glaring inconsistency with this group of Christians. On one level, they're willing to sacrifice their lives for Jesus. On another, another level, they're, they're unwilling to sacrifice their lives for Jesus. And Jesus says, if you don't deal with the sin in your church, Pergamum, if you do not deal with the sin in your church, then I will deal with the sin in your church. Did you notice as I've read through here, where is the, where's the problem at? Is it people outside the church that are deceiving this group of Christians? No, it's obviously, it's people inside the church that, who are saying things like, it's okay. It's okay to compromise with the world. Sexual morality, according to the world's standards, it's no big deal. Take part in the pagan sacrifices because, hey, that's one of the ways that you cut business deals in the culture. But it's okay. It's okay. And Jesus says, if you don't deal with it, I will. Why do these brothers and sisters, how did they miss the boat so badly? Could it be that they just hadn't been properly taught? They were ignorant? I think that's a possibility. I mean, one of the most important parts of discipleship, of discipling younger Christians, of growing up younger Christians, is teaching them what Jesus says, helping them work through hard ethical issues. Uh, Jesus says, baptize them and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you by. And so maybe what's happening in this church is there just wasn't a strong form of discipleship. Maybe it's the whole fishbowl problem. If you're a fish in the fishbowl, you can't see the water. And maybe the views of the wider culture were just so intuitive to them, it was a blind spot. They couldn't, they couldn't help it. They couldn't see it. Everybody has these views about sex. What's the big deal? But the people in that church were being called to root out a permissive attitude toward immorality or else. Did you know that Jesus Christ speaks that way? Like he's an or else kind of guy sometimes. Usually the words that he has for us are sweet grace, are, are kindness, are tenderness, and when I'm talking to somebody in a counseling situation, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flood them with honey and flood them with love and speak about grace and forgiveness and all of that. But then there are some people who 
really have to be, they have to be, they have to be spoken to very firmly. And that is what Jesus Christ does in verse 16. Repent. Otherwise, I will come to you and I will fight against you. Did you know that we serve a Jesus who will actually fight against certain Christians in certain churches? Uh, in one of the one of the places I heard them, somebody was interviewing a pastor in the country of Colombia, and they said to him, "What is the biggest issue, the cha- biggest challenge you guys have in the Colombian church today?" And he said, "The biggest challenge we face is that we've got a lot of Christians who believe that God wants them to be wealthy. And many Christians." Think entirely in terms of this transaction where if I obey God, he will give me what what I want. Many churches teach that if you have enough faith to give so much of your income, then God's going to give you ten times that much that much money. He said, we live in a pretty impoverished culture here in Colombia, and you have no idea how tantalizing and dangerous is that trap. He said, many teach the power of quote, positive declaration that whatever you claim in faith becomes reality. Many people believe a gospel that is no gospel at all, but, a, but merely a caricature of the gospel. When I look around churches in Boise, I don't know how much health and wealth stuff is, is a big deal. I, I do know that if, you, if we were to go to an African-American church in parts of the country, that they say that's a really, that's a big deal. I wonder if, I wonder if we don't have our own version of, of the health and wealth kind of Christianity insofar as we just assume that God's going to do us good. And then when something bad happens to us, we come apart. We're, we're so threatened and disturbed when things don't go well for us. We're not ready to suffer for Jesus Christ. I was in Seattle a week ago, and one of the pastors in Seattle serves on the board of Covenant College, which is our denomination's liberal arts college. It's located in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. He was back there for an alumnus gathering. It might have been homecoming. And he was talking with a gal who graduated Covenant. She went to med school. She's now a doctor. And they're having the typical conversation. How was your education? How well did it prepare you for your your career? She said, I loved Covenant. Covenant was a life-transforming experience for me. I would go back and do it over in an instant. Um, And one of the things I most appreciate about Covenant is Covenant prepared me to get fired. She said, I was working in a hospital. I think she was a resident in the hospital, and they were pushing me to give out RU, RU486, the pill, that pill, in the emergency room. She said, you've got to do this. I looked my supervisor in the eye, and I told him, I believe that God has made every life on earth, and that life begins at the moment of conception, and I will not hand out that pill over my dead body will I hand out that pell. And what did her supervisor say? He said, you're fired. 
But see, she's saying, I've been discipled. I've been taught how to think through difficult ethical questions. Like the, the conglomeration or the, the meeting point between Scripture and 21st century life. I've been discipled in that way, and I've also been prepared to believe that bad things will, can possibly happen to Christians, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm okay with that. I'm okay to suffer for Jesus Christ. Well, let's go on to then, finally, what is the, the hopeful section of this verses 17 and following. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I, one of the things that you can do on Sundays when I preach is you can silently in your heart speak to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, I, I want to hear. I really want to hear. And, I mean, the way that the Bible works, there's not always a perfect one-to-one parallel, right? Like, not every passage of the Bible is sort of where you're at in your Christian walk. You may not be here. You may not, we may not even be Pergamum. I hope we're we're, we're not, we're not there. But you can still say to the Holy Spirit, Spirit, please speak. And I believe that he does. And it's so important that there's that interchange taking place between you and the Holy Spirit on Sunday morning. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna is the first promise. Remember the manna was the bread from God that the Israelites, when they were out in the wilderness, they would go and find it on the, on the ground, and they would gather it each day. It was the bread of heaven. It was uh, honey wafers. I think that's how they described it. Honey wafers, sweet to the taste, satisfying to the soul until you ate too much of it. <laughs> he says, I will give you the hidden manna. And why is the manna hidden? That, well, it's hidden because you can't see it yet. It's a feast that is yet to come. It's a feast. It's a party that's yet in the future. And he says, if you will believe me, if you hear the Spirit saying this to you, if you will repent of your wickedness and turn from your ways and come back to me, then I have hidden manna awaiting you. Then he says, and this one's a little harder to figure out what he's talking about. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Apparently, white stones were used for a variety of things in the, old, old, uh, in the first century. Sometimes white stones were given out to those who were accused of a crime by a jury. So if you thought the person, if you're serving on a jury, jury, jury trial and you thought the person is, is um, not guilty, you give him a white stone. If you think that he's guilty, you would give him a black stone. This could be Jesus' way of saying that I will vindicate you. I'll declare you not guilty on that last day. Or, the other thing that white stones were used for, it, they were used as tickets of admission to a feast. So you get a white stone with your name written on it, and 
That's what you present at the door. That's what got you into the feast. And you've got to think that that's what's probably in mind here. If you hear my words, you repent of your ways, then I will give you a ticket to the heavenly manna feast. It's going to be the best thing that you've ever tasted in your life. Finally, the blood tests come back. You've gone to the doctor for your annual physical, and the blood tests have come back, and the doctor says, it it doesn't look good. Your bad cholesterol is through the roof. Your triglycerides are high. They're so high, they're immeasurable. You're overweight by 30 pounds. You're sedentary. Your diet is terrible. Your, your insides are going to explode if you don't do something about it. Is that how doctors speak? Yeah. <laughs> and so what is he going, in that instance, what is he going to prescribe for you? He's going to prescribe for you diet and exercise. Diet and exercise. And he's going to say that you've come to a crossroads, a crisis point, a fork in the road, that, that you are on the precipice of life and death. And it's either diet or exercise. Now, you know what? If you have a really impressive doctor who um, is six foot four and he says diet and exercise, and he's a hulking man, you might, you might take him more seriously. But what happens when the doctor has a sword protruding out of his mouth? And he says, this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of life and death. For somebody here, I guarantee you. And it is a matter of life and death for some churches around here, though I don't want to name them. I truly believe that we ought not to speak badly about other churches. You know, take the plank out of your eye before you mess with the speck of dust in your brother's eye. But it is a matter of life and death. He holds the keys of death in Hades. We believe in a God who's holy, who makes demands of people. And of a Jesus who has the hidden manna. And if you're listening to him today, hear these words. Repent, therefore. If you refuse to join with this world in its wickedness, then you will be welcomed to my Father's eternal heavenly manifest. Oh, that's kind of cool. Manifest. (laughs) That is to come. Amen.